Welcome to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, with Sandra Banyats and Phoebe Maris. Hi, I'm Sandra. And my name is Phoebe. And you're listening to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, a podcast series where we want to talk about current research in journalism. I'm so old that I have seen several times in my career how my colleagues really want democracy to work well. And a well-working democracy means that, according to their version of uh, democracy, the people sit down and spend all the time on democracy. The person you just heard is Eric Albeck, who is a professor at the University of Southern Denmark. He'll be chatting to us some more in a second. He visited Vienna last December to give a research talk at our department. And of course, we took this chance to catch up with him. He not only told us about the interesting history of journalism studies in Denmark, but also his research in political and economic journalism. Historically, journalism was taught at vocational schools in Denmark, but then in 1998, journalism studies was founded at the University of Southern Denmark and they needed someone to take over professorship there. But there weren't many journalism educators with background in research. And although Eric has a background in political science, he was one of the few who had engaged in research on the media. And so this is how Eric ended up in journalism studies. It's actually a, um, an interesting phenomenon that in political science, the media has traditionally played no real role. So when I started as a student in 1974 studying political science, we had a book on comparative politics and everything was compared. You had uh, a comparison of political systems, whether they are parliamentary systems or uh, uh, presidential systems, or you compared uh, election systems, you compared uh, interest organization courts, and there was nothing. That's not true. There were two lines, and I'm not kidding, there were two lines on the media. But the wisdom at that time was that the media has no independent role in politics. The media are actually media. So they mediate what other actors think, etc. But why would you cover in a course in politics an institution that doesn't matter? Uh, that has then changed, uh, and there are probably uh, several reasons for, th for that. One is that it might be true that formerly the media played no role. If you take uh, a very famous study on uh, media effects, which was done in the US in uh, around the presidential election in 1940, Uh, the county of uh, Erie in the state of Ohio, uh, they had, I think it was 2,500 um, uh, people who were followed throughout the whole election campaign. And during the campaign, only 54 persons changed their view on what they wanted to vote. And in none of these cases could you track that back to what had been brought in the media. So that was a time when Uh, political scientists started looking at it. So what is important to where people uh, 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 cast their vote? And that would be your family background, your education, your work, etc., etc., but not really the media. Also because you had 
and at least in Denmark it was so that you were pretty much born into a specific political party. If your dad was a, and it was your dad we're talking about here, if he was a worker, then uh, you would become a worker yourself. Your mother was uh, home taking care of the household. You would uh, have your spare time interest in the social democratic uh, youth organization. You would uh, read the social democratic newspaper. You bought your uh, groceries in the uh, social democratic co-op. Uh, organizations, etc. Everything was social democratic. If we were in the countryside, everything was what the Palmers did. And the, quite a lot had to happen before you switched from one party to another. But uh, later, you got much more volatility among uh, voters because uh, today you have workers who both own their own houses and who rent houses, who are car owners, who don't have cars. I mean, you have uh, people are, are, have, have many more conflicting interests than they had earlier. At that time, they they had the same interests as the neighbors. So today, people uh, switch parties much more than they did earlier. They do it much later during the election campaign. Some people, uh, some even don't know where they will cast a vote until they are in the voting box. This also means that there's a greater room for the media to actually affect people. So that's probably one reason. Another reason might be that our theories of what media effects are have changed. They've become much more refined. Our methodologies of studying this has been become uh, uh, changed. So today, the wisdom is—I guess—the wisdom is that uh, the media is an important player, but it's only one among the other players, and mostly the the public notions of how much of the power of the media are uh, exaggerated but it doesn't mean that they don't um, that they don't affect politics His move from political science to journalism studies is maybe not so surprising considering the history of Denmark's media system Yeah, because politics and journalism have had a two-way uh, relationship. Yeah, so um, in Denmark we used to have a um, a partisan press. Um, but what happened in Denmark is pretty much what you've seen in a number of other countries, that in the, uh, yeah, from around 1920 and onwards, um, it was difficult to um, raise enough revenues only by... Uh, through subscribers, so you needed to get money from somewhere else, and where you get money was from advertisements. Now, uh, if you look for um, advertisers, then you don't want to offend them. Uh, so if you had very strong partisan views and you didn't hear uh, uh, several sides of the story, then advertisers might become uh, offended. Also, if you had um, a partisan press, you could pretty much only know, reach the members of your own party congregation. Uh, so if you wanted to have a bigger share of the public, then you needed to do something differently. So that was the time when the modern norms of objectivity, balance, etc., etc., started to evolve. <clears throat> so, um, uh, and this is also when uh, the professionalism of Uh, Danish journalism started to evolve. And we have a very strong um, journalism profession in Denmark. So there is a um, sharp uh, division between 
uh, news in newspapers and opinions. So we still have reminiscences of the party press when it comes to editorials. We have also some studies of, of the letter to the letters to the editors, and they are different in the in the different newspapers, uh, depending on the audience. And uh, there is a partisan, somewhat partisan audience. Basically, the news as such are run by professional standards, but then you have uh, the views sections that are influenced by partisan lines. That's the printed press. Then we had one broadcaster uh, until 1988. Uh, then we get got a second one. Um, and they were both public, but the, the, the alternative one that we got in 1988 uh, then became a private broadcaster, but they have public service um, uh, obligations. Uh, and the government wants to sell it but they have had problems with the EU on how they can actually sell it. So, so we still don't know if it's going to be sold. But once again, the two public service broadcasters have public service obligations and th there are certain things that they have to follow in order to uh, actually get the license. Since journalism in Denmark is both highly professional and yet still has remnants of partisanship, what do audiences expect from objectivity when it is such a murky concept? Another question is whether the objectivity norm will continue to be important to journalists and audiences, seeing as there seems to be a shift towards transparency. Um, my sense is that the Danish audience still want journalists to be um, objective, however you define that, but definitely that they should not be Uh, partisan in their uh, in the journalism, uh, so uh, both in the self-image of journalists and 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 what journalists think should be at the forefront of their professional norm, uh, objectivity is extremely important. So we have surveys of of uh, all Danish journalists, not only the political journalists, and the objectivity standard is actually uh, still what they adhere to. It is also my impression that that is what the audience wants. Um, I mean, personally, also, if I read a newspaper, I mean, my time is scarce. I don't have time to read through all these. I expect them to be like that. I, I expect them to be objective. I expect them to check the sources, etc., etc. But it, this has been a... Uh, I think journalists today have a feeling that uh, they are in competition from uh, other sources of information because you can get all kinds of information from the internet. So how can you actually say that we have a different product that you should buy because it's better? It's better quality than what you find on the internet, etc., etc. And of course, this has been an attempt to uh, to show that your product is of better quality. Um, but I'm not sure that um, you get very much out of it by attaching that to each individual article because, I mean, my my sense would be that most people don't have time and they don't really care to to check it. This issue with not having enough time appears to be problematic when it comes to how much audiences actually participate. Okay, so I'm, I'm so old that uh, I have seen several times in my career as a political scientist and now as a uh, uh, professor of journalism 
how my colleagues really want democracy to work well. And a well-working democracy means that according to their ideology or their version of uh, democracy, the people sit down and spend all the time on democracy. So they have to participate in the kids' school boards and they have to participate in referenda and they have to participate in uh, you know, discussions uh, online when there is a news story, etc., etc. But once again, my f- sense is that most people have don't have time for that. Maybe we have a problem that that many journalists, many political scientists are simply over-ambitious on behalf of ordinary citizens. Uh, and you, you have a totally different um, model of democracy saying that it's actually fine as long as people are uh, informed and they have sufficient knowledge to actually cast the vote, then that is what is important. But it's not necessarily important that they participate in all kinds of discussions the whole time. According to this, participation is not necessary for a functional democracy, but citizens should ideally be at least informed about general issues. And that might be problematic when it comes to quote-unquote boring issues like economic news. In Denmark, economic journalism used to be very dry and target a very elitist and narrow audience, but it has in recent times become more mainstream, as Eric and his colleagues found. So what has happened is that uh, today economic news is much more mainstream in the sense that it, you find it in ordinary uh, news journalists and also that, the, that the, the means that journalists use to portray politics are being used to portray economics. That means that you make many more uh, uh, human interest stories, that you have more conflict, etc., etc., Why is why has this development um, come about? I mean, one of the things is that the economy probably means more to ordinary citizens today than it used to do. So uh, we we simply have more money. Uh, more people have money today to invest in pensions, uh, or they buy houses, uh, they buy cars, etc., etc. So their decisions: Is this the right time to buy my house or sell my house? Is this the right time to invest uh, my pension in shares, etc., etc.? They need information to get that. So uh, people have become more interested in uh, the economy, and journalists have responded by making economic news more uh, mainstream. Uh, but this has all been one of the criticism against uh, economic news that now it's uh, you know it's much more conflict driven it's much more human interest and people don't get the information they actually need so our study shows two things that we have made a longitudinal study that shows that people might not know the level of the economy You know, if you ask them what is the gross national product in Denmark or uh, what is whatever, they might not know exactly where it is, but they have a very precise knowledge of when it goes up and when it goes down. And that is really what's important to people. I mean, especially when it goes down, you have to know, okay, I should uh, uh, maybe not spend as much money that I do. It's not that important to know that now it goes really well and then you can buy a kitchen number two or a new sofa, etc., etc. So if you follow the economic developments and then you follow people's 
idea of whether it goes up or down. They followed each other very, very closely. And where people get information about this is actually through the news. So apparently the news really uh, serves the purpose here. The other thing uh, we're shown is that the fact that you make human interest stories, that you use conflict, etc., that is particularly useful for what we call the inattentive audience. They're simply part of the population that are not inherently interested in economic news. But the news catch, catches the interest if it's conflict, if it's sensational, etc., etc. And also, if it's you know human interest stories, they might it might catch their their uh, their attention. But it also helps them understand what is actually uh, at play here. So the inattentive audience, um, they get much more out of this new form of portraying economic news than the attentive audience does. So, so those people who are not inherently interested in economic news or in politics, they they are actually helped by this development. Um, and it's pretty much the same thing we see in this, the study uh, that we do on how news actually uh, affects uh, engagement. Um, so that if you take something like soft news, uh, soft news programs, um, it's often seen by people who are not inherently interested in policy, who do not read news, etc. But they actually do get some knowledge out of these uh, new forms of, of, uh, of doing journalism. In his research talk, Eric talked about balanced reporting and a structural bias towards coverage of adversarial political issues. That could be especially problematic when it comes to deviant actors that are seen to promote violence or hate speech. As Eric asked in his own talk, how do you cover Kim Jong-un objectively? There is a fascinating study of... Um, a school conflict that went on in the UK where a public school was accused of teaching creationism. And uh, this was vastly covered in, uh, the, uh, in the British press, but there were different beats of journalism that looked at it. So if you took the uh, science journalists, they knew that creationism is deviant. There's no reason to give them a say. We know that it's idiotic what they say. So they, uh, and so they very much um, sort of sided with the natural scientists and said, you know, this is crazy. If you took the uh, journalists who... So, so they had one um, uh, view of objectivity. We know what the truth is. But then if you took uh, uh, the, the beat that normally... Uh, covers uh, education or journalists who uh, sort of have a broader uh, uh, range of topics that they, they cover. They use the balance ideology of, uh, of uh, objectivity. So they listen to both sides. And they even say, you know, uh, this is an example of, of very different ways of approaching this because in the one uh, case with the science journalists, they knew that this is simply focus of what they say. So why should we treat it as if it was normal knowledge? 
whereas the the uh, educational journalists and the general journalists they thought no we have to use our balance principle here and listen to both sides and then it's really up to the audience to make uh, up their minds uh, themselves um, so uh, I'm not sure I have a clear answer of what to do and what because I mean you can come up with many examples if, if you have somebody who comes and says that the moon is a green cheese should you then consider this a normal statement or is it a deviant statement are you obliged to actually cover it in in journalism you have i mean all types of alternative uh medicine are you obliged as a journalist to think that this is something which should be covered as if it's at par with modern medical science um i have no clear uh, answer to this but I think it's important that uh, even if you don't in your ordinary um, journalism give it a fully balanced portrayal, then it's very important that you actually cover it in a way so that people understand why are there people who think this way. So if we take ISIS, uh, it's important that we know why is it that some people are actually attracted to it, what is their ideology, etc. So if you make... I mean, if you make a news where you just say this is totally crazy and they are, uh, you know, lunatics, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, people don't get better informed by that. So, on the one hand, I think it's difficult to portray an organization like ISIS or Kim Il Jong as, uh, you know, as normal political actors. On the other hand, I think it's very, very important that we, that journalists give the audience an, an understanding of why people are attracted to this and why are people convinced by these people. Unfortunately, very often, these contentious voices are automatically associated with marginalized groups in society. Think, for example, Muslims and terrorism. So how can journalists report such stories without reinforcing stereotypes? My best advice to journalists is actually to try to be aware where you have your structural bias. So how is it that the ordinary um, rules of thumb when you make your ordinary selection and presentation of news, how is it that these uh, rule of thumbs actually could, in the end, end up being, you know, pr producing a structural bias? Um, because the more you're aware of it, the more you might also be able to um, counterbalance it. Uh, like if you take, so I have no study of this, but I'm quite sure I'm right. If you look at depictions of homosexuals in uh, newspapers or on television, it's always the most extreme ones, the most in the most pink, the more most gold, the most etc. etc. But the vast majority of homosexuals do not look this way. So why is it? It has a better, better news value because this is uh, it, it looks different. It's sensational. It's uh, uh, counter to our norm, ordinary norms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think um, it would be wise for journalists to think about whether this is the best way of actually portraying uh, reality. And it doesn't matter whether it's uh, <clears throat> it's um, uh, homosexuals or if you have. I mean, I'm, I'm quite sure that if you looked at most of the pictures you have at, at the moment of Muslims in Europe, 
they are with uh, women in burka or whatever, yes. And there are very few of them in the streets. Most Muslims don't look like this. So why is it that you always pick these uh, stereotypical uh, pictures, which, first of all, gives a wrong impression to the general audience, and secondly, it's very difficult for ordinary Muslims or homosexuals to actually see themselves reflected in the picture that's given in the news. And I do know that uh, there are a number of, of uh, editors, journalists in, in Denmark who, who every now and then take this discussion. Um, it doesn't mean that it goes away, but it, it's important that they actually aware of what's happening. But of course, journalism and society are in this cyclical relationship so that they kind of mirror each other. So when society changes, journalism reflects this change and vice versa. And of course, journalistic practice and strategies are not set in stone. In fact, a longitudinal study conducted by Eric and his colleagues has shown that there has been a steady increase in the use of experts in news. And what makes this study even more interesting is that it looked at whether gender of experts plays a role in how audiences perceive their authority. In my study, I have specifically looked at researchers from independent institutions of, 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 of uh, science um, because uh, in our study we started with 1961 and then went up every 10th year. We looked at how many experts are here. Now, the definition of expertise has changed over the years. So many more people are called experts today than they were, were earlier. So if we found an increase, it might simply be a function of the fact that the, the definition had changed. But we took a subsample where most people would agree that they are true experts. Uh, so we just used uh, the titles that are used of these people, like they are professors, associate professors, or researchers, or whatever, and that hasn't changed over the years. Um, and then we could see that uh, there was a steady increase, and then from around 1980, then it suddenly exploded. Um, so what I've done now is that I've made a follow-up. Um, it's an experiment where we wanted to find out, does it actually affect the audience that you use experts as a source in a news uh, article and also is there a difference between if it's a male or female uh, expert and um, what we found was that first of all the fact that uh, a piece of information is sponsored by an expert that actually does have an effect there are more people who uh, accept that view when they have read that an expert sponsors this uh, particular uh, viewpoint. But what was really interesting was that there was no difference between whether it was a male or female researcher. We had thought that it might be so. Uh, I, I have obviously no study that had actually looked specifically at this, but there are a number of other studies that show that people uh, give less credit to uh, a woman if if she comes with a viewpoint. So you would expect that there would be a difference. Um, and we had actually had one newspaper article that uh, where we had doctors uh, as experts, a male and a female, and another one where we had economists. Uh, 
Um, so it might be that uh, because today you have more female doctors in Denmark than you have uh, male doctors, so it might be that people were used to seeing female doctors, but we have very few female economists. But in either case, uh, you found it. This might be specific to Denmark because you have had uh, a very long history of uh, women being in the labor market in Denmark and, and uh, also that there are certain uh, professions that were uh, formerly dominated by males where you actually have more uh, uh, women than men uh, today. As we are approaching the end of this podcast, we wanted to know, as always, what Eric thinks are pressing questions for future journalism research. Well, uh, the huge question at the moment is that we we simply don't know how news will be covered in the future because of what has happened with the internet. Um, the fact that the legacy media have difficulties actually... Um, getting enough income to to uh, to produce news and the fact that you can find quote unquote alternative information on the uh, on the internet and that quite a few people actually don't read news anymore they get information from somewhere so this is extremely fascinating and I think this is you know should be one of the great topics for journalism studies over the next years. that was it for this edition we hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast and if you want to know more about eric's work you can go to the university of southern denmark webpage and if you'd like to know more about our research you can find us at the journalism study center at the university of vienna our website is journalismstudies.univ that's univie.ac.it There you can also find information on the rest of our team, Daniel Nolleke and Hannah Siegel, led by Volker Hanusch, and also our contact details if you'd like to get in touch. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter under Journalism Studies Vienna if you'd like to follow us. And of course, we'll hope you'll be around for our next podcast, where we will be talking with Scott Eldridge on new actors and boundaries of journalism. The music you heard today comes from Blue Dot Sessions. And we also want to thank Lisa Kiesenhofer again for lending us her beautiful voice and also Radio Campus for lending us their equipment. My name is Sandra. And I'm Phoebe. Until next time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>